Today on the show, we are not cultivating desert power. We are desert power. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> was that good? Was that okay? I'm kind of hyped up now. Yeah. Hell yeah, we're desert power. Worm roar. <laughs> <laughs> Worm roar. Worm roar. <laughs> Welcome to Gamjabar, your guide to the iconic world of Dune. We'll be exploring the themes, philosophies, and characters found in the sandy depths of this vast universe, from Frank Herbert's groundbreaking novels to the adaptations on film and TV. My name's Abu. My name is Leo. And Leo, yeah. we're here to close it out. We're doing it. <laughs> Sci-Fi Channel's Children of Dune, Part uh -huh. 3, the final episode, the end. <laughs> of this iconic story and this iconic miniseries. It's true. I think we should make broad and dramatic changes to how we normally do episodes mm. that confuse and a little bit frustrate listeners. Yeah. Just to be in theme with how this episode. <laughs> I love up it. The I love it. Yeah. Great. So the game plan for today is that we're going to start <laughs> with a rap battle. Uh-huh. Yeah. And then we're going to go into some poetry <laughs> that you and I have written. But ASMR poetry. Yeah, yeah ASMR exactly. poetry. ASMR poetry. A lot of mouth noises. And then just suddenly loud noises. Really loud. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> what do you yeah. think about throwing in a worm roar? How are you, how are you feeling about a worm roar? Worm roar! <laughs> <laughs> roar! I'm a worm! <laughs> oh my gosh. All right, so <laughs> clearly we have feelings. We have feelings yeah. and they cannot be contained. But let's contain them for two more minutes, Leo. Two more minutes. Sure. Because we need to make shout out Mapes proud and take care of some <laughs> housekeeping before we talk about this episode. First and foremost, a spoiler warning. Today's episode contains spoilers for Dune, Dune Messiah, and Children of Dune, the first three books in the Dune saga. So if you have not read those, Go do that first and then come back and listen because we're talking about like end game children of dude stuff, literal final scene stuff. <laughs> yeah, literally the end of the book. Exactly. Lucky for you, we have deep dive chapter by chapter book club episodes that are spoiler free for new readers on all three of those books. So you have no excuse. Get to reading. Zero excuses. It's only like 3,000 pages. It's fine. <laughs> what else do you have going on in your life? Bills? Ugh, family? A job? Friends? Cringe. Job? Embarrassing. <laughs> Get your priorities straight. <laughs> and one of your priorities should be, how do I support this great podcast that I like? Great segue. Thank you. <laughs> so <laughs> the best way to support us and what we do here at Gamjabar is to become a patron over at patreon.com forward slash Gamjabar. You can get ad-free episodes. You can. That's what you get. You get in exchange for your support, ad-free episodes, weekly bloopers, <laughs> as well as some cut content and other kind of weekly goodies. For instance, I'm taking scene-by-scene -scene notes for yeah. these three episodes mm -hmm. and posting them to the Patreon. So if you are curious about that sort of thing, that's included. Yeah. And they are extensive, folks. Let me just be clear. <laughs> I was like, oh, he probably like opened the notes app on his phone, jotted down some bullet points. It's like nine pages 
per episode, yeah. Thoughts <laughs> that is broken down scene by scene. Yeah. It's incredible. You need to sign up to be a patron and go check that out. It's long-winded at the very least. <laughs> <laughs> but that's on brand. Indeed. If you want any of that, become a patron over at patreon.com forward slash gamjabar. And as always, we have to shout out our Quisats Hatterack level patrons, Case Aiken, Matthew Good, gentlemen. Although it's never explicitly stated what our relationship to you is, like whether it's like romantic or platonic or whatever. Yeah, 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 yeah. Your support makes us so appreciative. When we do show you physically our appreciation, people are going to be like, is this incest? <laughs> is this <laughs> more than, I don't know. It's kind of all right. I don't know. It's debatable. Yeah. We'll kiss you on the mouth. <laughs> we will. Smooch you. That's a promise. <laughs> <laughs> Only if you want to. It's Only not listed on the tiers of Patreon, but uh, <laughs> you read between the it's lines. It's on the it's table. <laughs> it's on the table. It's true. Thank you, gentlemen. Seriously. Thank you for your support. Another great way to help us out here on the podcast is to check out our merch store, gamjabarshop.com. Mm. We got custom Dune themed merch on that store, folks. There's apparel, there's art, there's mugs, there's this beautiful tote bag with a cute little more deep mouse on it and so much more so go check it out and snag something nice for yourself or a lover or a sibling <laughs> oh yes yes <laughs> finally we do love to hear from you especially if you have ideas for things that you'd like to hear from us so email us gomjabarpodcast at gmail.com best way to reach us we want to know what you think about this mini series Email us your hot takes. Email us your opinions. I have the email open now, and I see that people have been doing that. It's excellent. And although this is the last episode that we're going to talk about this series, if you send something that is like poignant that we want to share, we have mailbag episodes coming up that we will talk about them. Absolutely. All right. So let's talk about the real game plan for today's episode. Yeah. Sadly, for those of you looking forward to the ASMR poetry. <laughs> not happening not today right. at least not today the game plan for today is the same as it was for episodes one and episodes two we'll debrief about part three and call out some of the notable changes which there are a plenty indeed and then we'll share two things that we liked about the episode and two things that we disliked and finally we'll wrap up by sharing our favorite scenes and discussing our brief overall thoughts on the series as a whole, now that we've completely wrapped it up. So we'll get into all of that after a quick break. So don't go anywhere, dear listener. We will be back in just a minute to wrap up our conversation on Sci-Fi's Children of Dune miniseries. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back, everybody. Let's do it. Let's talk about the final episode of the Children of Dune miniseries. The first thing we want to talk about broadly are some notable differences between the miniseries and the book. And by a 
fucking margin. Yeah. This episode changed the most. And we have feelings about that, but let's just talk about some of the changes first. Just the facts. <laughs> just the facts first. We'll get to the feelings in a minute. <laughs> yeah. So first and foremost, the thing that immediately changed at the start of this episode is that there is no the twins plotted to fake Leto's death plan here. Right. It is just Leto's plan. He intentionally tricks Ganema or allows her to think that he was killed by Tony the Tiger. <laughs> right. And in this episode, we see him standing off on another dune or something, looking out and being like, sorry, Ganema, yep. I had to pull this ruse or <laughs> right. whatever. And she heads back to Siege Tabrera. So that's entirely different here. It's not a plan right. they came up with together. It's something that Leto did on his own. Yeah. Another big change is what happens to Leto next. Because as we know in the book, he gets abducted. He goes right. into that forced spice trance because of Namri and Gurney. And a similar thing happens in this episode. But the reason it happens is never explained. Because in the book... <laughs> It is because of Jessica and the Benny Gesserit and their plans to test Leto, test him for abomination, test him to see if he's worthy for the throne, what his powers are as a preborn and as a Kwisatz Haderach. All of that is why Leto is abducted by Gertie and why right. he is brutally and right. uncomfortably force-fed spice to the point of near death. Right, yeah. And a lot of that is sort of compressed down and shortened and simplified in this episode and the Benny Gesserit slash Jessica reason behind it is omitted entirely. Right. It's like a cast out is like, we're going to make him go insane. Like Ollie is insane. And it's yeah. like, okay, yeah. why are right. just to, just to get at them or okay. Fair, right. Fair enough. Exactly. And Gurney's not there. <laughs> He's somewhere else. Yeah. He's lost in the desert. <laughs> and actually along those lines, his abduction sequence is so dramatically shortened. Yeah. <laughs> it's not like two months of him out in the desert being forced to this thing and meeting Sabiha and having this whole thing. It's literally just, he's there for a minute and then he wakes up and he's like, oh wait, no, I'm good. I'm good now. Bye Sabiha. No riddle game, <laughs> no like going out, coming back. None of it. Just he's there for a bit, has a dream and is good. Yeah. It's not even entirely clear what changed he kind of just <laughs> goes super saiyan <laughs> yeah he's like but we nah, don't good but now. his hair doesn't turn yellow there's right. no aura there's no he just like <laughs> we have to assume he goes super saiyan because that's yeah. what he tells to be it's like i i'm fine you know i'm not possessed get out of my face he drinks the spice essence right he kind of just like oh that's right he does, he does flex like, on her he's like look i'm good and she's like damn that was he just did a whole shot. That was a double shot. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's true. He, he does do that. He a few beers. He's like, this guy's rat as fuck. He's like, bye. <laughs> yeah. Unfortunately, we don't get the long extended chapters that we do get in the book that follow his journey and make us realize, A, how awful and painful this whole forced trance situation is. B, the sort of mental and metaphysical awakening he's having right, about time right. and space and his abilities his and the first future. ancestor like the early ancestor exactly exactly all of that is sort of not here he just kind of goes super saiyan and takes a shot <laughs> yeah it was rad as fuck though it was it was very rad, yeah. impressive <laughs> coolest frat dude i've ever met 
We also get this choice. Stilgar oh. attacks Arakane. <laughs> Maybe you can tell how we feel about it. Stilgar attacks Arakane in yeah. an army of worms. Yeah. Rather than going out into the desert to like return to the old Fremen ways. Yeah. I will say he starts an attack on Araki. Oh, right. They're, then, they're at the border. And then encamps. And, and then like, encamps. I'm scared. I don't want to do this. I don't want to do this anymore. Stilgar, we talked about this. You have to. Stilgar, you, have to. you, can't, you can't keep encamping on the verge of attack. On the verge of attack. But I'm scared. What if it doesn't? What if they don't like me? Yeah. It's a tough choice. We'll talk more about that later. Another change in this episode is Wencesia's fate. Yeah. Instead of being exiled, right. as she is in the book, she falls victim to, honestly, like this very incredible dupe from Faradin, yep. who on the day of the wedding, straight up rats out his mother. He's like, yeah, yeah no, she trained the tigers. I saw it happen. I had nothing to <laughs> yeah. do with it, you know? Yeah. And we'll talk about it because I actually love that scene. Sure. Yeah. And I have some thoughts on it, but... That was a change is when Cecilia's fate in the book is sort of just off page. She is exiled and we never kind of see her again. Here, it's this like dramatic wedding scene. Yeah. And I'm not even sure what happens to Wincisia in this miniseries. Like she's taken away by guards. So right. in prison, maybe. But I also can't remember what happened to her in the book other than that she was exiled from like the Carino Palace on Salusa Secundus. And I'm like, that's, is that a death sentence? <laughs> is she dead now? Either way, that's a big difference. And then we get this, it's a combination of scenes, and it's Alia in the crowd listening to the preacher talk, and then him grabbing her and going, stop trying to pull me back into the spotlight, sister. Right. It's that scene combined with the scene where he's finally in the Arking City, and he's knowing that he's going to die as part of this golden path. Right. It's those two scenes combined, basically, which as a viewer was a little bit confusing because we see her up at her keep right super far away and he's echoing in the distance as he's talking and then she's in the audience and kind of disguised so she uh tobogganed down very yeah. quickly and managed to be next to him during his final performance and he's killed instead of by one of her priests he's killed by muris uh, yeah. cast out jacarudu fella father right. of who screams jacarudu yeah. at the end too in case <laughs> in case you were they're sure. very strong on the branding they're like you have to yeah yell jacarudu how will they know we did it yeah their social media person is on top of it for sure <laughs> he's like guys remember whatever you're doing jacarudu <laughs> <laughs> you parked your car especially well you got to scream out jacarudu yeah you must i do <laughs> i do too <laughs> when i get that perfect parallel parking spot yeah in the city yes, mm. Rudu, maybe. <laughs> startles the passengers in your car yeah so those are some of the more notable changes there right. are many more smaller ones sprinkled here and there and as with the last two episodes some of the scenes are condensed or combined like that alia scene and the preacher death scene right. or shortened or tweaked and i would say Compared to episodes one and two, here it does make a dramatic difference. Sure. I think the number of changes and the creative decisions made in this episode stack up to ultimately create something that I think deviates pretty wildly from the source material right. in ways that I'm personally not fans of and that we'll talk about today. 
But I think before we get to what we didn't like, let's focus on the positives because there is still plenty to love in this episode as well. Yeah, 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 yeah. So let's actually start by talking about the two things that we loved about this episode in particular. And I'll let you kick it off for us today. Sure. There was a lot to like. And I also want to stress that this is maybe a week third chapter in a very strong overall product. Absolutely. Yeah. I'll come back to that point as we go throughout this episode. But just to emphasize, like there's some really good stuff across the last three episodes. Yeah. My pick for this is that despite some wild changes that very much deviate from maybe the original text and the original characters and their choices and their motivations, there were surprising moments of heart and surprising moments of like really moving, beautiful, like human moments that I think demonstrated a, a very solid understanding of the characters. And of course, mm -hmm. I've selected a few in these John Harrison went off script, but I think feeling a connection to the characters and their feelings and feeling that real empathetic response to maybe even scenes that didn't resonate me with Frank's book is surprising to me and is cool and I think should be celebrated. So first, I want to talk about Leto and Paul talking on the dune as Asan yeah. Tariq releases the worm. He's got that little chore to do. And Paul touching Leto's hand was really sweet was just a nice, beautiful little moment. I know in our conversation about the book, we talked about how Leto's response to that is no knife can harm me and like no poison can. And we were talking about how it could have been a father touching his son for the first time, really. Or it could also have been him maybe seeking out, is there some way for me to still kill him and stop him from doing this terrible thing? But in this adaptation, it was just all sweet for me. Mm -hmm. James McAvoy is just electric throughout this episode and i think that during this scene he was really beautiful in the way he presented those character choices alec newman hissing at him angrily was a different <laughs> <laughs> slightly different choice but yeah it's fine that scene had some moments where i was really touched it's just like seeing the father and his son talk about what has to be done yeah yeah that scene really worked for me too i mean it was sort of an abridged version of the scene that played out in the book. Right. And I think some of, as you stated, some of the layers of that conversation were simplified. Right. I think it was more heartfelt than the book portrayed because in the book, there is some very clear antagonistic energy going on here right, between right. father and son. Here, I think they leaned into the more heartfelt aspect of it, where it is a father reuniting with a son and these two prescient, all-powerful, messianic beings <laughs> yeah, yeah. finally being able to talk to someone who understands. Right. And I did enjoy that part of it. So I think the simplification here worked for the most part. Yeah. I think there's lots of reasons why it would work or doesn't work. The second moment kind of gets to, again, another McAvoy praise element, but it's along these lines. When... He responds to Gurney. Gurney's like, what about your aunt? And he goes, my aunt is lost. Mm. There was a real, like, him and his father on the sand dune was touching and more emotional, kind of in the same way that Jessica is more sympathetic throughout than it was in the book. But also, like, these moments where he says, my aunt is lost, is just a declaration. It's not melodramatic. It's not this, like, hyperbole of... 
this is the curse of abomination and this is what right. it could have been so much more and they could have made that decision especially considering some of the other actors and their choices throughout but the fact that it was just such a simple declaration it was just such a simple little moment i was like wow fuck that's sad and that's very well done that little moment mm -hmm. was really beautiful yeah for sure i think the restraint there worked well i think even in the book leto and many of the more powerful prescient beings in the book yeah tend to like to talk in circles <laughs> yeah yeah and some of that is part of their mystique right they got to keep up the i am a prophet so i say sure. things you don't understand yeah. i am totally with you on this i liked the directness of this because it really helps the audience understand too that there is no redemption here right. for alia my aunt is gone right full stop it's also the sort of language that gurney would respond well to right like gurney yeah. halleck is not someone who wants you to beat around the bush and he will spout prose until the cows come home but <laughs> he's gurney halleck so giving him that yep. sort of direct like no no we don't need to talk about that she's gone yep the next thing i have on my list is Faradin owning his narrative admitting the Carino tiger plot like we'll talk about that scene later but it's just amazing like that whole yeah. little sequence was yeah. great <laughs> and when he turns to Ganema and he pivots it and says like this is my present to you is like that oh. truth and then he like so puts himself literally he kneels and is like your move I am at your disposal but I showed you my character in this moment I was like fucking they did it <laughs> I like Faradin I like Faradin a lot that was yeah. really great. And it was also something that I think very much invented for the miniseries is not even remotely from the book. But I do right. think from what we know about Ganema's character from the book, that is the sort of thing that Ganema would be like, wow, yeah, I respect the honor of that and the courage and the bravery in the same way that Jessica, despite herself, is impressed by that troubadour. And she's like, he's got the audacity to say some shit. Yeah. That's the kind of guy right. that Leto would like. That's the kind of guy that House Atreides is built upon, Faradin demonstrated in that little scene, this character moment, demonstrates that he is very much an Atreidean sort of guy and just beautifully done. I thought that was like yeah, super well written. It was great. So well done that it almost feels like a cut chapter from the book itself. Totally. Yes. Uh-huh. It's great. And also we have the background, not even from the miniseries, but from the book. He spent his whole life studying House Atreides, fascinated yes. and obsessed. So it's also like it makes sense that he would know the best solution for this situation. Right. The best way to appeal to them. It's just great. It's just yeah. like a really oh, wonderful so good. moment. Also, considering Faradin basically didn't have lines until this episode. I know. Yeah. I was like, you've got a lot of catching up to do. And he fucking caught up. It was great. He did it. I was sold on Faradin as well by the end of this scene. He started as the cutest child <laughs> also. <laughs> so yes. And then two more quick ones. Preacher Paul putting his hand on Gurney's when they're together on Arkeen. And Gurney's like, who are you? Like, just tell me that Paul is dead. Tell me that you're not Paul. And, and he's like, yeah, that person who I was is no longer that sort of thing. Mm. And effectively requesting his final meal. Just let me be who I am, and I am hungry. Yeah. It was a really sweet little moment, and right. I thought really- What do we think his final meal was? Oatmeal. Oatmeal? <laughs> no? Just banana cinnamon oatmeal? <laughs> Is that a boring final meal? 
Yeah, <laughs> it's a terrible final. Okay, gotcha. I mean, no judgment, dude, but you deserve better than that. Can you imagine <laughs> your, your last day on Earth and you're like, what do I want? Give me that Quaker Oats, baby. <laughs> Give me that antiquated man on a <laughs> cannon shell of, of, of grain. Just... It's very strange. I mean, I mean, okay, you got a lot of opinions here, Leo. What's your fi- what's your final meal? Shotgun three beers. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> it worked on Sabiha. I feel like it's kind of work on the executioner. They're like, God damn, this dude's red as hell. <laughs> All right, you're off. You're off the hook. Yeah, yeah, that was good. That was good what you did. That's fair. That's fair. <laughs> Fascinating choice. Yeah, probably oatmeal. <laughs> No, you know what? Actually, <laughs> Paul would probably have some pundi rice from Caladan. Mm. He would want that oh, quality yeah. pundi rice from Caladan, a bit of that Caladanian wine, and then just mm. simple, but reminds him of home all before yeah. the Arrakis stuff. And then maybe one of Chani's, like the recipe Chani used for the morsels, the like leaf wrapped mm. morsels. I feel yes. like that would be nice and. and yeah, I think you're correct. That's perfect. Or oatmeal. <laughs> or, or just oatmeal. <laughs> I also wanted to shout out James McAvoy again, his acting when Alia puts the knife to his chest in their final confrontation and she's looks like ready to stab him through the heart with the Chris knife. First of all, it implied that he was vulnerable. And I kind of love that because in the book, he's just at that point, he's immortal. He's like an immortal God and he just throws people around and he's so above it all. So having him have a moment where he's like, no, I trust my aunt to, rest control in these final moments i mean it's kind of the thing that helped awaken duncan idaho right that he could not move himself to kill an atradian person yeah he could not do something in spite of that loyalty so saying you are possessed by baron harkonnen but at your heart of hearts at your core you are still in atreides and i know that this will help you is just beautiful it's like very wrapped in lore it's very wrapped in these characters also, just the look on his face is heartbreaking because he's seeing everything that's happening to her. I thought it was incredible. Mm-hmm. And it's really brief, but we get a shot of him crying after she dies. Yeah. Also, heart-wrenching. Beautiful stuff. So, in summary, to wrap up this sprawling, <laughs> meandering mess of ideas, <laughs> do I wish that John Harrison <laughs> kept closer to the book because the book's fucking great and you don't really need to change that much? Yeah. A hundred, two hundred... 400%. But I also think that yeah. the above scenes, the ones I was just talking about, I think they did a really great job of demonstrating that he understood these specific characters well enough to create new moments with them that feel, like you said, like cut chapters or feel like alternative drafts that maybe Frank wrote before publishing the final. Yeah. We've said that before as well. And I think that compliment to Harrison and the team still stands. Like they know these characters oh. inside and out. We've gushed about Irlan. We've gushed about yeah. Chani doing things differently in these miniseries, but doing things that perfectly make sense for who they yeah. are as characters and what their place in the story is. I think understanding that on a deep level is one of the greatest challenges of Dune and also can be one of the most controversial things. Because if you get that <laughs> wrong yeah. and... Duncan Idaho, for example, does something totally out of character, then you effectively ruin an iconic character. And knowing and understanding these characters and being able to write additional yeah, scenes yeah. in their voice is such a magic trick. 
and John Harrison was a wizard and being able to pull them off. Yeah, he gave us an amount that respected Irulan and Chani. We got more of them. It was great. He also understood that Palimbasha is exactly the kind of guy to be trying to get laid and get instead yes. knifed by a person. Incredible. He's like, yeah. does Palimbasha fuck? Almost. Almost. <laughs> Almost. Nearly. That is the core of Palimbasha's character. So I'm glad yeah. that he also nailed that. <laughs> I will say, by my count, that is now two people who have died on screen mid-sexual activity in this series. Yeah. And I'm wondering if Mr. Harrison has talked about this fear in therapy, because this seems like a deep-seated <laughs> fear that he's trying to get out there. Yeah. And it's okay, buddy. No one's going to come get you while you're, you know, you can fuck in peace. Yeah. Just focus on having a connection with your partner, John. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Stop saying death still in the <laughs> midst of copulation. Leave it alone, dude. <laughs> Gotta focus on your pleasure too sometimes, you know? Anyway, our advice for John Harrison's sex life aside. <laughs> what's your first pick for something you liked? <laughs> so I 100% agree with those moments you pointed out in your pick. So. I want to start by saying I second that. Sure. The writing in the additional scenes is in the characters' voices in much of this series. And that's not something to be overlooked. Right. The thing that I went with then is I, and this may be controversial, I actually liked how Leto's transformation was toned down. Oh, interesting. Sure. In this miniseries, it was basically just him combining with the sand trout and them attaching to his arm. And we saw it sort of expand and grow over the course of the episode, getting up to his neck and starting to expand to his face and presumably right. across right. the rest of his body. But it was a very slow expansion. Right. And I think it benefited the visual medium. To be clear, I also want to say that like parts of the transformation and how it was portrayed were utterly disastrous like we've already <laughs> joked a couple of times about the worm roar yeah that was bad i don't <laughs> want to be too mean about the special effects because it's a early 2000s tv show budget special effects whatever they did the best they could with those green screens but woof some of that like running through the desert was really cringy and to bad. be fair on par with the flash cw series really which is in the last like three years it's oh, okay. not good. Don't get me wrong, but you're right. It's not good because it's like the early 2000s. Yeah. It's amazing to me how bad it can still be trying to do that sort of effect. For some reason, people running fast. I can't think of a time I've seen it great. Yeah, totally. You have to do that slow-mo that they do in X-Men, you know? Yeah, the Quicksilver running. That Quicksilver slow-mo. That's the only way to really portray it well, I think. All of that aside, I think this transformation translated better to the screen mm. rather than the very dramatic and frankly very gross <laughs> transformation that is described in the book yeah we've discussed in the past how some of the weirder parts quote-unquote weirder parts of frank's story are probably best toned down just to make them a little more palatable for the average audience mm -hmm. alia comes to mind right two-year-old alia speaking in full sentences throwing right. out philosophy, a bit of cognitive dissonance there that I think becomes so weird that it's distracting, takes away from the story. So maybe you age her up. Right, right. 
I think this is another example of where if it's so weird and if he becomes a wormy boy too fast, yeah, it becomes more distracting and you just like can't think about anything but how weird it is that this worm <laughs> yeah. man is talking. Yeah, yeah. And so I think the transformation helped make that a bit more palatable to right. someone who's doesn't know about Dune, is new to this universe, or just would be off-put by the weirdness of it. I think there's another practical benefit to it, and that's just the fact that James McAvoy is a great actor, and you don't want to cover most of his face and body with like right. a worm suit or a worm CGI. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Having the transformation just be on his arm and seeing it expand allows for his face to still be very visible, allows for him to still have his human form and walk around and do the blocking in the scenes and do the physical acting and the facial acting that makes him such a stellar on-screen presence. Right. And I think that's hard to do. That's the Mandalorian problem, right? It's like, right, how right. much can you cover the face of your fucking lead character and yeah. your lead actor that you probably paid too much money for? <laughs> yeah. So I think there's just sort of like a practical on-screen filmmaking benefit as well to sort of toning down the transformation. Because again, to be clear, for those of you that have forgotten the book, like the worms cover his whole body yeah, and he can pull them up over his nose in like a still suit nose fashion. So they act like a still suit for him. It's weird. And it's described as yeah. this like creepy, we chattered about it in our book club. Living leather skin. Living leather yeah. skin that's like squirmy and moves. And in our book club, we chattered about how it feels like a venom situation, like a venom symbiote yeah. situation yeah. all over his body. So I think it would be a tough tightrope to walk. Yeah. How weird do we get before it's distracting? And I think the miniseries made a choice here, and I personally was a fan of the choice. I will also say I had an initial very viscerally negative response to it because he, obviously the worms look terrible. The little, like, the sand trout that right. came out of the, <laughs> it looks awful. It's like, <laughs> so I think if you gave me an hour to do it, that's about how bad it would look. So I was, yeah. I was really confused. I'm like, these are professionals. <laughs> how did this happen? <laughs> and then after this whole thing and his like, oh, I'm changing, I'm changing. And then he looks down and it's like the size of a quarter yeah. on his yeah. hand. And I was like, the fuck is this? Give me my worm boy. What right. are you doing? But, and this is to the point that I think this was a good choice not only did they quickly show that he could just stand in a sandstorm, so even the unchanged skin is changed, which is good. I'm like, oh, yeah. it's not just, he's got an immune part of his hand. Just make sure you block the knife with that little spot, <laughs> you know, or whatever. Yeah. So there's that. The other thing is how quickly it grows across the episode, because yes. by the end, it's like most of his right arm and his neck and his shoulders, and it is so much more. I get the impression that, oh, yeah, two weeks from now, three weeks from now, it will be fully encasing him. And you're right. They get all of the benefits of having the actor be basically unencumbered. They are able to do it as a practical thing where they just have this makeup effect on him. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And also, by showing it growing so quickly, we still get this is this huge dramatic transformation that's going to happen. Yeah, totally. I mean, his vocal cords clearly changed. <laughs> Worm roar! I'm a worm! <laughs> What's up, everybody? <laughs> All right. What about item number two for your picks for the things that you liked? Yeah. Okay. 
the second thing I chose was another small selection of things <laughs> because <laughs> on brand, there aren't rules. We make this podcast totally. So I said, this is little Lord tidbits that they got right in mm. spite again of the wild changes. And basically for as many issues as we're going to get into <laughs> yeah, a little later, I think that there were little moments of lore that I really appreciated and wanted to take a moment to celebrate because again, John Harrison for all of his weird choices in this third act, clearly does understand the characters and understands the universe better than I would ever hope. Like really like genuinely impresses me how well he knows everything. So let's get through some of these. I have three. The first one is the explanation of weirding combat and weirding movement. And in case it's been a minute since you've seen the episode, we see Faradin in a training sequence with Jessica and she goes, and now <laughs> she does a weirding move and it's yeah. that kind of blurring cool effect and he can't do it. And he kind of explains why it's hard for him. He's like, I'm trying to do it the way you told me. I'm visualizing myself in the new position, but it's not happening. And she's like, it's fine. It'll take time, blah, blah, blah. But yeah. even just his little moment, his little explanation there, I thought was one of the most beautiful explanations of weirding combat. I think it's even better than it was ever said in the book because the idea, right, that the Bidding Jesuit can visualize themselves at position B and they get there faster than they could normally have moved that distance in combination with their intense ability to see their enemies and analyze and process information. Anyway, it was very cool. A very good explanation, which was great. I also loved with Faradin. I can't remember the exact line. I should have written it down. But he says, I'm going to be the author of my own story or I'm going to like, yeah, I'm going to take that, control of my own narrative kind of that thing. That stood out to me as well. His use of the word author was really fun because we didn't get his rebranding in this miniseries as Harkal Ada, the kind of like historian scribe for the god emperor Leto Atreides. So there's like having lost that in the miniseries, it was nice for him to say, oh, I'm going to be the author of my thing. Tip of the hat to the fact that he basically does become the official author for his cousin Leto II Atreides. Yeah. So I was happy with that little moment because it kind of eased the burn of not getting the other thing, which I thought to be a very cool plot twist. You know, we, we yeah. talked about that in the book club. The, ah, Frank did it again, <laughs> you know. Right, it's, right. It was another Carino <laughs> this whole time. Very <laughs> and cool. I think that line was very intentional. Yeah. There is a million different ways of saying that line more economically. <laughs> yeah. I'll take control of my own fate, Jessica. Right. I'm in charge of my own destiny, Jessica. But to use the word author there, yeah. I will be the author of my own destiny, feels very intentional and on purpose. And again, knowing that John Harrison understands the story so well, it doesn't seem far-fetched that he chose that word totally for a reason. Yeah, it's better than his rough draft, which was, mother, I'm tired of you controlling me. I'm going to, as if a new person, a new renamed person, be the scribe, the official imperial scribe of my own <laughs> destiny from now and forever. And although I will never be married, I, <laughs> I will be with someone who there may be love eventually. <laughs> and yeah. says he's like, what the fuck? <laughs> yeah. The editor was like, John... Can we can we just talk about that one line? And he's like the worm a little, roar. A little on the nose. Can I provide you some yeah. feedback? Are you yeah. are you open to some feedback? No. 
He's gonna worm roar a second time. <laughs> Every time John you try knows. to fucking bring me feedback, I'm gonna add a worm roar. <laughs> oh boy. Yeah, I bet he held that over the writer's room. It's true. <laughs> the final thing that I wanted to celebrate is the sons of Esmar Tuik. And this is upon rejoining the smugglers, Gurney Halleck meets with a man and he's sort of sussing him out. Do I trust you? Can I trust you? This is right before Gurney joins up with Paul and Leto. And right. the smuggler says before they clasp forearms very impressively, he says, we are the sons of Esmar Tuik. And considering I loved Esmar Tuik as a character in the book, I know that in Dune, he dies <laughs> like yeah. a quarter of the way through the book. <laughs> the idea of these like rogues, these smugglers, these bandits, these criminals, really imperial criminals, but mm -hmm. who have like a moral compass and a code of ethics and honor. And they are the sorts of people that would sit at a table with Leto Atreides and work with Dr. Kynes. And like, I just really liked Esmar Tuik as an idea, as like an archetype. Yeah. So the fact that he has become, we are the sons of Esmar Tuik is really cool. And there were references in Children of Dune to the Tuiks, like there's Siege Tuik named after mm -hmm. the line mm -hmm. of Tuiks. But we didn't get that, and instead we got this. And either way, I'm just happy whenever a Tuik is mentioned. Yeah. They're cool. And it's such a deep cut. Yep. Like in the book, <laughs> I feel like Tuik maybe comes up a little bit more. It's right. still a deep cut in the book too, all right. things considered. But I think in this TV show, especially in a miniseries that came years after you may or may not have remembered some guy named Tuik at the yeah. banquet. Yeah, no kidding. It's like the deepest of cuts, you know? Like if there was YouTube around yeah. the time this series came out, this would be in one of those like 10 <laughs> Easter eggs yeah. you didn't notice. <laughs> the rock you know? stars, new rock stars is like, hey guys, welcome back. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. Yeah, so I love me a deep cut like that too, you know? It's for like the 12 people who will notice. Yeah. And like that's, first of all, it's nice being one of the 12, you know? You're like, yes. You know? Yeah, yeah. And then whenever a TV show does something like that, where it's like, this is small, it's not a distraction, but it is for the 12 people who will get it. <laughs> yeah. Love that shit. I will also say, it's the sort of thing that Gurney Halleck would understand, and it would also demonstrate very quickly to Gurney Halleck the kind of men he's dealing with. So it's yeah. like, you're right. It's a deep cut, and it also is one that makes oodles of sense from a lore perspective and from totally. a character perspective of Gurney being like, okay, bet, you're on the level. That's great. Right. So right. very cool. And that's my second thing. So kind of some attention to detail. I hope we get some mentions of, well, no, we didn't even get to it in the first one from Villeneuve, but it's fine. What about you? What's your second pick for something you liked from this episode? So my second pick is fairly small because there's basically only one scene of this in the miniseries, but I right. appreciated that scene regardless. We get a shot of these ornithopters doing like a raiding attack yeah. on some random siege or some random community in the desert. And for me, that was important to show because throughout Children of Dune, through the whole book, there is plenty of unrest within the Empire, but particularly in Arakeen. And by the end, by the time you're in the last couple of chapters, things are literally on the brink of civil war. Like that spark could light any day now. And there are raids happening in the desert. Late to at this point in the book is this like 
devil of the desert or whatever they're calling yeah. him like yeah. out there fucking breaking stuff it's chaos it's havoc and like alia's world is falling apart as her mind is also falling apart you know right and in the book we've spent so much time focusing on the characters on alia on leto on jessica on farad and that some of that like big picture politics fades into the background and the focus becomes so much about Leto's transformation, about prescience, about the future, about this, about that, about characters doing things. And we sort of lose focus on the big picture politics of it all. And I liked that in this miniseries, we got some more sense of that. A sense that Alia's political world is also falling apart. That there is a civil war happening, that there are rebel Fremen yeah. that are wreaking havoc out in the desert here in Arakeen and that there's engagements, like actual battles taking place between right. the rebels and the Atreides soldiers or the Fremen that are loyal to the Atreides. A lot of that happens entirely off page and it's just referenced in a couple of throwaway lines in the book. Here, it's an actual scene. In the book, we didn't get like a chapter where we saw a right, raid right. happen or whatever. It wasn't front and center. And it, Frank is never really interested in that sort of thing anyway. He, right. he doesn't write like action scenes and whatever. But in a miniseries like this, I think it's important to do some of that world building that for Frank is off page, I think in a miniseries like this, to get it on screen and to have it front and center and to feel that civil war brewing adds a sense of urgency to all of the events taking place and adds a sense of stakes to the choices that the characters are making too. So that's another thing I liked about the miniseries is that the unrest, the impending civil war, and the conflicts taking place outside of our characters, we got to see a bit of that. Yeah, because in the book, it's pretty much only the cone teen moment with the troubadour that we get a sense of like the very real and active perception of alia as this like terrible thing mm -hmm. among some fremen and so to see the like oh yeah we found this priest of yours killed and carved up with a message to you from fremen yeah it's like, jesus lord they really did decide to put that more front and center in a way that was effective as a yeah. visual storytelling medium well we've showered this masterpiece with praise Nothing wrong with it, right? You might think this far into the episode, <laughs> we've got some news for you. We also had problems with it. We are going to talk about those problems that we had with this final episode in the miniseries after a short break. So stick around. When we're coming back, we're coming back hot. We're coming back with Indeed. criticisms and complaints. Voices will elevate in volume almost as loud as a Worm roar, register trademark. Roar. Roar. <laughs> <laughs> so stick around. We'll be right back. Don't go anywhere. Welcome back, folks. Let's now turn the tables a little bit. We have showered this episode with praise. It's time to do some critiquing because yeah. there are things to critique. <laughs> yeah, there are. Let's talk about two things that we did not like about this series. And I'll start it off for us this time. Sure. Yeah, set the, set the tone. <laughs> Here we go. My first pick 
definitely sets the tone. Yeah, what is it? For the things we're going to talk What's about. What's your single pick? I wrote down <laughs> basically everything about the third act. That's what I wrote down in bold in our script <laughs> yeah. that I disliked about this series. Mm-hmm. And it's true. I stand by that. Like, I actually went back and rewatched and looked at the time code because I was like, when did this series basically fall off for me? Like, right. when in the right. episode was I totally checked out? Because I was just like, this is off the fucking wagon at this point. And it's the last 30 minutes. I was still in the wagon yeah. for most of the episode. And then basically after Farad's truly iconic betrayal of his mother, which I did genuinely love, the last 30 minutes of the episode yeah. are like, I don't even want to hold back, are just like so utterly bad that I <laughs> completely like did a 180 on yeah. this episode where I was just like, nope, <laughs> like the bad creative choices, things are wrong here. And the thing that stood out to me, particularly in the last 30 minutes, is just how sort of choppy, rushed, and weird it felt. Right. Like, it almost felt like they had an ending in mind, and the ending was different from the book, whatever, they made some creative choices, but they maybe had a cohesive ending. Sure. And then maybe it, like, wildly got cut down in the editing room or something. Like, there are points in the last 30 minutes where it feels like a scene stops in the middle, like there should have been more scene happening. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And it doesn't. And we (laughs) joked about it earlier, but the Stilgar attack is one of those moments. Yeah. Where I'm like, you had to have filmed something else for this, right? (laughs) Because like what is in the final product is not a whole arc of a story. You're like, you're setting something up, but there's no payoff. Right. So it feels like there was an ending written. Maybe it was too much. Maybe it went over budget. Maybe there had to be dramatic cuts. Maybe it was all shot. And in the editing room, someone decided it had to be trimmed down and it got trimmed down too much. I don't know. But it certainly felt that way. Right. And I will say, I have been vocal in the past about my opinion that Frank himself is not the shining example of landing the plane of your book properly and getting the final act of it nailed a hundred percent in a way that's perfectly satisfying and closes all the loops. I have criticized Frank's writing before for feeling rushed and clunky, particularly in the end of his books in those last few chapters. Yeah. And Children of Dune, the book, is no different. Like the final chapters, there's like multiple time skips that happen in quick succession. There are important events that just happen entirely off page that we learn about like in a throwaway line in hindsight. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it certainly feels a little rushed and clunky. That, that's almost like a Frank staple. <laughs> yeah. Dune, Dune Messiah was that way. Dune is that way. His other novels are that way too. So I think to be fair to the miniseries, any adaptation that tries to take on the monumental task of adapting this book will have to make changes to the third act for it to make sense on screen. I think Agreed. that is yeah. absolutely necessary because the way it is written is done in a way that only works, in my opinion, on the page and in yep. a chapter format. It doesn't work in a cohesive. You say it works, but a lot of people have that complaint where they're like, wow, that was rushed. That ending was rushed. And it's like, yeah, yeah it's a great book. But yeah, the ending was kind of rushed. So Yeah, totally, yeah. totally. So I, I think... It's not the creative decisions I have a problem with because I think you have to do that when you're trying to land the ship of Frank's incredible stories. It's just 
not like this. It shouldn't have been like this. <laughs> not like this. And there are many complaints that I have, but instead of sort of getting into it and ranting on and on, here's just like a quick shotgun blast of just some of the more egregious decisions that sure. stood out to me in these last 30 minutes. One, Paul being murdered by Marie's makes literal zero fucking sense <laughs> why that would happen. Yeah. <laughs> Marie's yelling Jacarutu is one thing. Sure. <laughs> Jacarutu! <laughs> <laughs> that in and of itself is stupid. But Marie's <laughs> wouldn't kill Paul. At this point in the story, no. all of the cast out are religiously behind the god emperor. Right. They have submitted to him. They wouldn't be killing someone who's under his protection and is his literal father. It, may, it makes no right. sense. And honestly, why not just have Alia's guards kill Paul in that? Why make that change? Yeah. <laughs> That's item number one. Item number two is the worm roar. We've said our piece about that. <gasps> worm roar! <laughs> yeah. We've made enough jokes yeah. about it. It's bad. It's True. cheesy. It's cheesy in a way that doesn't even feel like, oh, ha ha, nostalgic, cheesy, early 2000s sci-fi trope. It's just like a bad decision. Shouldn't have yeah. had that happen. Item number three that I didn't like is by the end of the episode, I was like, you could have cut all of Gurney's scenes and this could have been a yeah. 20 minute shorter and we would have <laughs> lost basically nothing because yeah. Gurney did nothing this whole show because we cut the whole Jessica, Benny Jesuit, Gurney, drugging Leto plot right, line. Right. Item number four, the final showdown with Alia, the wedding scene. There were moments in it that were good, and I agree with a lot of what you said earlier in our discussion. But in general, the roar, the way that it went down, Alia stabbing herself rather than jumping out the window, like Jessica, I had like just problems with so much of the like tiny, tiny portrayals of the characters. And I think that's one scene where you kind of just have to stick to the book as much as you can. You can maybe get rid of the Leto swinging his aunt around in a circle in like a <laughs> yeah. Bugs Bunny cartoon fashion. Sure, get rid of that. That's weird. But this confrontation was dramatically changed, and I didn't like a lot of the changes. And the final thing I'll say here is that I didn't like that Leto was sort of minimized in this whole thing. Yeah, Like he was our protagonist, and we don't learn by the end of the episode that he is ascending the throne that he's going to live for four thousand years that he has activated the golden path and we're all on it now this right. is leto's world we're all just living in it and more importantly than even all of those like logistical things i think the emotional part of leto losing his humanity and starting to become disconnected with the people around him because of his abilities in almost like a dr manhattan from watchman sort of way that's not here at all. If anything, he's like more emotional and more connected, perhaps too connected with his sister. Like <laughs> it just, I was sad to see that Leto's journey was sort of simplified to just the hero that shows up at the end with superpowers and saves the day. Right. Rather than the grand sacrifice that we know from the books he is making. That was missing from most of this episode, but particularly the end where they could have wrapped up that thread. So that's just a quick laundry list of issues. A lot of them are in the final 30 minutes of this episode. It really lost me. It really lost me there at the end. I think creative decisions are fine and well. And John Harrison has proven that he understands this world, understands these characters, 
and can expand on them in a way that makes sense. Here, it didn't make sense. I think many of these decisions fundamentally changed or omitted major themes in the book that are critical to Frank's story. And they just missed the mark in translating Frank's original intentions here, I think, at the end of the story. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So that's my uh, mini rant. I could say much more about it, and we have other things to say about it. But th <laughs> that's my first pick, is that in general, the final act of this episode around the last 30 minutes totally and utterly lost me and took me out of it too much to enjoy it. I will now hand off the mic to you. What was your first pick for the things you disliked about this episode? I'll say that my first pick is basically, yeah, the abandonment of the final act of the book. Like it kind yeah. of along the same lines as what you're talking about, this continued departure from the original text in ways that doesn't make sense for characters or makes characters worse or plot beats weaker. And totally agree on all the points you brought up and i think also like we were both kind of holding out to see if certain possibly concerning trends were gonna like get wrapped up or addressed by the end and some of them weren't which yeah is a tough look because then it's like oh wow so now if i go back and watch that first episode like jessica jessica in this miniseries i can now say is just like the kindly grandmother who's like yeah. visiting because her son got black contact lenses and then wandered out into the <laughs> desert and is keeps now roaring everywhere. He keeps roaring. That's her great grandson's roaring everywhere. Yeah. It's very like, she's just such a weak character in this mini series. Yeah. Cause she is like Benny Jesuit and she teaches for Rodden and she has some of the like moments in the show that she had in the book but this question of whether or not she returned to the Bene Gesserit, the question of like her drugging her grandson to potentially mm -hmm. death for the sake of proving herself loyal to the Bene Gesserit, the fact that the Bene Gesserit were going to have her killed, all of that stuff is so saucy and completely missing. And it makes her way less cunning and intelligent and planning and manipulative and way less relevant. Like kind of the yeah. same thing where if we took all of Gurney's scenes out of the miniseries wouldn't really change anything right kind of same for her because for Auden's there like I guess I guess that but it doesn't didn't really seem to matter any of it because yeah. really in the book a big part of her involvement is what's happening to Leto through Gurney and yeah with that gone it's like okay what is Jessica doing other than being flown from point A to point B by people and then being like, hey, do stuff here for a bit. It's right. Like, okay, right. sure. So that's that's one thing. Leto going to Arkeen and being like, Father, you have to come with me. And you can't go out into the desert and die of Fremen's death. You're going to come to the city and you're going to die is what's necessary. And we both know it. And Paul being like, okay, <laughs> sure. That's the book. And I liked that. I thought there was some real weight to the decision and also for him to be like, we're going to leave Gurney because I want Gurney to live. Yeah. Uh, Heartbreaking and beautiful and sweet. Again, what was Gurney doing in Arakeen? Other than like being right. a sounding board for the preacher for them to talk for a little. But even then, you could have had that fucking moment in the scene that they were all together. Right. Back in the siege. Like combine yeah. scenes, John. You already know how to combine scenes. Just do it again. Yeah. yeah. I don't know. It was very strange. And I agree. again, 
when you make the decision to put Gurney in Arakine at the day of everything, it's like, why? What, what does this do? Yeah, we've talked about it before, but Leto's prescience in this episode is basically just like non-existent. Totally true. You know, yeah. and yeah. the miniseries in general, like really treats Paul and Leto's powers as just like sort of superhero bonuses that they get and not <laughs> yeah. really, yeah. it doesn't really examine them in the way the book does. And that's right. like a huge core theme that's missing. Yeah. And I think this gurney point makes it very clear. Like Leto knows step by step exactly what's going to go down in Arakeen. Right. And he wants gurney to survive because of a personal love for this man. Not to mention then he fucking roars when his dad dies. And it's like, does that make right. sense? Father, son? Yes. Does it make sense? Leto, the second Atreides, who can see no. all of fucking space and time? Yeah. And even if he's not looking forward and present, he's seen the golden path. He knows his father. He knows his dad dies. Like, right. it's so... You're right. It's... Yeah. Ugh. I mean, don't even get me started about that teleportation thing. <laughs> Just swoop. I'm here now. Again, it's very like the CW Flash. And yeah. there are great... If you haven't seen this, by the way, Abu... If you haven't seen the compilation of like awful CW Flash VFX, it's shocking. It's like oh, yeah? genuinely upsetting what they managed to create. <laughs> and like <laughs> a team of people were like, yeah, this is good. And they hit send. Very yeah. strange. Wow. Anyway, wow. so yes, the teleportation, that was weird. And really the last thing that I had in this little section, my other picks also kind of a list of things. <laughs> but to wrap up this first small list of things and it's small because i do like the farad and Wincisia confrontation in the miniseries i really do like it but yeah. there was something about jessica being like okay then banish your mother and him being like done bye bye Wincisia. Yeah. like yeah. it said so much about farad as a character it said so much about the power dynamics of the house carino team <laughs> and the fact that tykenik who was very mixed feelings about when Sissia was like, yeah, that's cool. I'm fine with that. Right, right. All of that, I thought, was really interesting and poignant and well-written and nuanced and had great depth to it. Happening now, like happening on Arrakis and the guards dragging them away and Tychonic going to like defend her, that whole little scene played out a little bit more generically than I think the book does. Mm -hmm. And also... Faradin has kind of implicit protection here. Like, I would say confidently that the only person in this scene that could actually kill Faradin is Ganima. Politically, power-wise, it would be someone from House Atreides doing that. No one is going to kill Faradin Carino and this, like, this moment. No one's going to do that. So him saying, get out, mother, I'm actually on my own, with that sort of implicit protection just is not as strong. I think. Yeah. Then yeah. if he was in House Carino in Onslow Secundus and he goes, you know, actually, mother, I'm taking control over everything. I'm taking control. It's this is my house. It's my time. There is a universe in which she's like, <laughs> yeah, sure. And then has him killed and like adopts <laughs> Fade Rautha. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> you're you're my child now. I don't know. I thought that was weaker. They kind of foreshadowed it, but it really, it's such a wild moment in the book that I think just was missing from this yeah. adaptation. I forgot that was actually a condition of Jessica's in the book. Yeah. I'm glad you pointed that out. Like, that's another thing that wasn't here, is that Jessica played a role in Faradin's 
turn. He is Benny Gesserit. He is Benny Gesserit. Yeah. That's missing from the show too. Yeah. Well, that was my first pick. What's your second pick for something that you didn't super love? Okay. Well, my second pick, we've been joking about all episode, but <laughs> it needs to be said out loud. Sure. The incest vibes can no longer be ignored. Yep. Yeah. Like they were there in the previous episode between siblings. Sure. But we were like, yeah, they're twins. They're connected. They're preborn. Kwisatz Haderach. They're yeah. finishing each other's sentences. Sure. They're just really close siblings plus their shared experience. Right. We get it. We're just showing how close they are. We have crossed a line in this episode. <laughs> yeah. And in fact, I'll expand this to say I didn't end up liking the Leto Ganema relationship at all in this episode. Yeah. I think it was handled well, actually, in the last one, in episode two. Here in three, we start with the Laza Tiger situation, yeah. which makes utterly no sense to me because yeah. we get rid of the Ganema self-hypnosis, right? Because it's not part of their yeah. plan. Yeah. She wasn't in on the plan. All she does here is walk out and see a dead Laza Tiger. Yeah. One. One. Where's the other? First Where's of all? the other fucking tiger? Did they forget? They didn't have the CG budget for a second tiger. Right. <laughs> <laughs> maybe maybe it's two carcasses. I don't know. It's kind of off screen. Regardless, she sees this dead Laza tiger, stabs it a couple of times, and then just assumes Leto must be dead. It's like he's dead and gone forever. And gone forever and just heads back to Siege to Burr. Yeah. Why? Yeah. Yeah. Where is Leto's body? I don't see any blood anywhere. Right. Is there a shred of his cloak somewhere? Did he drop his knife? Nothing. Literally nothing in that scene, what we see on camera, you know, maybe there's an implication or whatever, but nothing that I saw on camera in my two watches of this episode <laughs> said to me that Leto Atreides was killed by this fucking Laza Tiger. She hands a scrap to Stilgar later. But yes, what it, or he has it, and they're like, "Oh, he has he's a dead. scrap." But I don't think they showed that in that scene, right? No, no. Uh, <laughs> yes, I think that's the one thing is like he smells it too, which is extra weird. But he's like, yeah, "It smells uh, like James McAvoy to me." Smells like my boy. <laughs> smells like my boy. I raised that boy. I raised. That. I could have killed him any <laughs> night. I stood over him with my knife. <laughs> that's how the book starts. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> Yeah, you're correct. To be fair, there is the cloak sniffing scene. And presumably that is Leto's cloak that she recovers from the Laza Tiger. But in that scene itself, there's nothing there that proves to anyone, least of all Ganema, that her brother is dead. Right. And it's just tough to believe, you know, just stick with the hypnosis thing. Yeah. I don't know. The hypnosis thing is not so, it's not one of those weird Frank things that it's so weird that it's unbelievable. It's believable to me. Yeah. Or even just like, Go with some sort of trauma response or something. I we haven't know. even They're... introduced truth sayers, so there isn't a problem to solve. She could just lie. That's true. I mean, because you're, you're right. The self-hypnosis, I could see that being hard to like show <laughs> for everything that it is. But the self-hypnosis was only necessary because they knew that Alia would have her questioned by truth sayers by truth to say, sayers. do you know he's dead? And her saying, yes, I saw the body only right. works if she believes that that is true. Right. She'd have to pass the polygraph and believe it. Exactly. So yeah. that is the reason that it was important for her to do that and unbury mm -hmm. that technique from thousands of lives ago. But in this, we don't have truth sayers. We don't Great like, point. that's just not a thing. So she could just lie. Like <laughs> after he kills the two Laza Tigers, he could be like, all right, I'm going to go ahead to Jakarudu 
you're a little banged up. You should go back and get medical help. Tell everyone I'm dead. It's going right. to be really hard. It's going to be really sad. Tell everyone I'm dead. Why cut her out of that decision? It doesn't make right. sense. Make the plan with her. Just be like, go lie for me. Yeah. That's so true. We are lovers after all. We are lovers after all. Jesus. That's such a great point, Leah. Like, there is no problem to solve in this miniseries. Right. Yeah, why why did he why did he lie at all? Am I making you angry about this a third time? Yeah. Now I'm now I'm like, yeah, there's another layer of anger you've uncovered now. You're welcome. You're, You're welcome. so true. That's like what we if, do here. if if we're gonna get rid of the hypnosis, if we're, if we're gonna simplify it, then like really simplify it. Yeah. And show me a 30 second scene of Leto and Ganema being like, okay, here's the plan then. Tigers right. are dead. I'm going to go on to Jakaru too. You need to pretend to fake my death. Deal? Deal. Yeah. Let's kiss. You know, like whatever. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's how, you, that's how you make a deal real. Otherwise, you're just saying words. Right. The so smooch true. is what. On know, the lips. On the lips. <laughs> All right. Well, let, let's talk about the damn kiss. <laughs> sure. Part two of my <laughs> anger over the Leto Ganema relationship, of course, is the weird incest vibes that are just sure. like so on screen during yeah. all of this. And in particular, are basically undeniable as far as I'm concerned in their reunion, the day of her wedding, when she's in the wedding dress. There's just way too much kissing and touching and handholding going on in that scene to read as anything but romantic. I don't care how close you are to your siblings. You are not doing that with yeah, a sibling. Sure. You know, and my first reaction was, okay, this is the show's weird way of implying that they're actually going to get married in this like political arrangement right. as they do in the book. Leto's bringing back the, you know, quote unquote, pharaonic empire. Right. But it's made very clear in the book that they never consummate that marriage because right. Leto is worm boy by then and that neither of them and they wouldn't want to yeah exactly like he can't in fact they're like disgusted by that idea yeah they're like it's so absurd for them i mean we expected them to suggest that it's not surprising but yeah no it's gross we, we wouldn't do that right so it doesn't even really make sense as like a i don't know some sort of reference to their eventual marriage to each other because in the show like are we assuming they fuck? Like, I don't know. Like, it's very weird and uncomfortable. And I think the wrong way to go about this. Sure. And nobody's a fan of incest. Like Game of Thrones maybe is the only thing that ever handled that correctly. Sure. And even that was like very, whatever. I'm not going to get into that. I don't need Game of Thrones emails in the inbox. <laughs> so in summary, not a fan of the Leto Kanima relationship in this episode. Sure. I liked it much better in the last episode. There was some restraint there. Here, it gets weird, it gets unnecessary, and if you are going to go down this route, then explore it and justify it further in the story. It's never explored as part of their character or part of their relationship in this, and it's never explained why any of this matters. We don't even see them get married at the end or anything like that. It's just all implied in that final Ganema standing on an outcropping talking scene. And this is another factor where I just feel like it's rushed like there's maybe another scene written that was never shot or something yeah. that explained some of this yeah and it feels like an editing room or a budget decision where they're just like okay fine just like cut it cut it cut it like let's right, let's right. end it and i think even the ending by extension like doesn't make sense to anyone who hasn't read the book you would get to that ending as a fresh like viewer of this miniseries with no context of dune and be like what happened yeah 
when she's like, you will be known as like consort. Yeah. And it's like, why? Why can't they just get married still? What's why? I think as a viewer, it makes no sense unless you know the book, in which case I hope you're as mad as me about it. <laughs> <laughs> I will say, okay, I really tried to be like, okay, this is me being uncomfortable with this because of like being an American and like physical touch and proximity and that these things mm. with siblings mm -hmm. is just not something that I ever experienced. And so I see it as weird and un uncomfortable. And I think it's still very true. And I think that it really is just the kiss on the mouth. Twice. Twice. <laughs> Takes it just over that point of yeah. like, obviously we don't see them bang on screen. And right. like that would be a further line crossed <laughs> in the sand. We can all agree. That would be a crossing of the Rubicon, you know? There's no going back after that. <laughs> so I don't know. It is tough because I was also uncomfortable with it, but I don't know where that balance is of like yeah. what is making me uncomfortable. And then I try to ask myself if they didn't kiss on the mouth. Okay. I imagine the director saying you are twins and you are of one mind. You are one yeah. character. And yeah. so the normal physical rules of like, this is my brother, this is my, no, this is an extension of who I am. You would maybe be more physical and touching and holding hands and being close. It's the kiss on the mouth <laughs> that I yeah. think is tough because this is also, by the way, everything I'm saying ignores the storytelling language of TV and cinema and movies where if you show me those two actors acting that way and don't give me any other scenes, I'm like, yeah, they're lovers. They're clearly. Right. I mean, there's a very explicit shot where it hangs on the mirror yeah, where the two of them are like holding each other. Aren't we so beautiful together? Like hip to hip, you yeah. know, like pelvises are touching. <laughs> yeah. And it like hangs on that shot for an uncomfortably long. Yeah. And she's in a wedding dress. Like, yeah. I don't know that there's. Again, there's a visual storytelling layer here that you just have to read into and be like, I don't know what else you're trying to say here with this shot. This like woman in a bridal dress. and yeah. yeah. Someone on set needed to be like, guys, what if people think that this is too, like, are we going to address this? And then they didn't choose to address it. And yeah. they didn't, she didn't say, you know, I'll be marrying my brother. We're not going to do anything ever. We don't like each other in that way. But for right. these reasons, it would take five seconds. You could take that uncomfortable long mirror scene out, and now you've got enough time for her to explain at the end yeah. what's going to happen and why Faradin's not going to be her husband. Yeah. Or make him her husband. It doesn't matter. Right. Nothing. But John Harrison threatened to add another roar in. You know, oh, so, shit. Yeah. You know, they're like, oh, <laughs> okay, back off. I'm backing off. Back. Stop bringing these things up to him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, I don't know. It didn't as viscerally bother me i was uncomfortable but i think it was at a point where it was excusable until it very clearly wasn't <laughs> yeah for and sure that's tough all right let's wrap up our dislike section of the conversation today what's your final item that you disliked my final item kind of goes back to the thing i was saying about jessica now that the miniseries is done duncan idaho tykenick and stilgar are bad they're bad characters. They yep. are bad changes, bad choices were made about them. And I want to take a minute to be angry about each of them in turn. Let's do it. Love it. <laughs> so 
I hated the way that these characters were handled. I was hoping uh -huh. for redemptions. I was hoping for Tykenik to get more time and more character. I was hoping for Duncan to stop being like a whimpering, weird computer man. And Stilgar is a bureaucrat uh. who's like, we will find the worms. And whatever. There was that one line. I can't remember. Right. Oh, send men to summon Worms. The worms. Oh my god! I was like, "What is? What is this? <laughs> what are you doing? Yeah. Are they main characters? No, not remotely. Could you consolidate? Could you change? Yeah, totally. Does it ruin the story for them to be these weaker elements? No. I still broadly love the trilogy. I still really love this miniseries. Yeah, but there's a whole dimension to the cast that's utterly missing, and I don't know why they made choices and changes that they didn't need to make. So let's yeah. talk about Duncan. Duncan first. Relegating Duncan to the like role of jealous, cuckold husband makes his whole character weaker. And also, even his most heart-wrenching scenes, I felt, were mishandled. Like, it felt very soap opera, very like drama on television, and didn't feel like this man whose wife, the love of his life, is evaporating into this evil possession and the horror. Like, I read the book and cried at moments yep. of Duncan talking about yes. Alia being gone and moments of just literal, like, oh, is this a horror book now? Because I'm so sympathetic to Duncan's situation that I feel all of these feelings. And now you have a real human man, an actor guy whose job it is to use the words you gave him to make me feel feelings and I don't feel anything. And that's right. insane. You've got the benefit of music and motion and sa I don't have to imagine the scene and you're dropping the ball in a way that's like really tough. Yeah. His scenes with Alia, I agree, were a fraction as emotional as they were in the book. Yeah. I think also his death scene with Stilgar was not as like epic as it was in the no. book. Not remotely. I was like, oh, here we go. Duncan's about to dunk on Stilgar. Yeah. The three insults, the like. Yeah, the three insults. Oh, I was so ready for that. Yeah. And even his death scene, his heart-wrenching line of two deaths for the Atreides for no better reason than, the, you know, it's yeah, the yeah, second yeah. for no better reason than the first. Like, fuck, yeah. that hits so hard in the book. Yeah, yeah. And to hear, like, I almost kind of laughed because it was kind of funny. Yeah. So I couldn't agree more. I think Duncan was mishandled in this series and oversimplified into just this like jealous, cuckold husband. Yeah. Also, killing Javid, right? Glorious. Glad <laughs> yeah. it happened. But in the book, it's shocking when he like turns and just buries his knife into Javid's chest. And he's like, yeah, all right, what are you going to do? And then for Stilgar to go through that hole, kills him. And then it's like, oh, fuck, we have to go. We have to go now. Yeah, there's <laughs> like a panic. Every, yeah, there's like a We have to get the fuck out of here. Who's with me? And then people go with him. That urgency, that would make such a good scene. It's already so cinematic. You almost feel the timing of the scene. Just do that scene. It doesn't make it better to make it the way it was. So, yeah, frustrating. And I think that scene with Javidas is a great point. Yeah. I also wanted to point out, like, the whole thing in Messiah, what happened to him after he died and was brought back as a Gola, I feel like should ideally evoke real apprehension and 
maybe even fear over the Tleilaxu and what their technology provides as like a thing. And it also deepens, it should deepen the mysteries of the Dune universe. Like when this man comes back and he's a dead clone with robot eyes right, and, right. Uh, and he's also a Zen Sunni philosopher. It's like, whoa, shit, this universe is huge. There's all this cool stuff that's out there, even if it's not immediately important. Like yeah. the word games, the Zinsumi philosophy, it's just fun. Fun, cool world building that we just completely abandoned. And now yeah. he's like, computer man, processing data. And it's like, okay, I guess when Sissia is like, you've been quiet, Mintat. And he's like, a Mintat must be careful with observation. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, <sighs> also even him returning to Duncan he was never quite the same, right? Like he was never the brash, drunk on spice beer sword master that yeah. he was in his living life. He is more eloquent and thoughtful and he has these like great, I don't know, he's such an interesting character. So the fact that he's just this like mentat or back to exactly what he was before he died, I think yeah. is like such a dropped ball. John Harrison decided that Duncan would either be a stiff robot or a normal dude and neither of them are as compelling or interesting or exciting as the character in the book. I agree totally. Tychonic. Oh, boy. In the book, he's sassy, skeptical. He's like, ugh, when Sissia, sure. And when it's like, oh, she's exiled, he's like, all right, cool. Yeah. <laughs> Change of manager, great. I don't care, whatever. <laughs> also, she keeps killing my men. Like, he's such a great character in the book. I, really, I liked him. And in this, he's a generic goon. He's just, uh, yeah, and then our plans will work. And she's like, yes. And he's like, good. I like the moment where he's interacting with the owl and gets, like, scared by it. Yeah. Amazing. That's, like, <laughs> the only good moment of Tychonic in this entire fucking series. And I also want to point out that, like, when Sissia and Faradin kind of define each other as polar elements within the Carino household, Tychonic is the Z dimension. Tychonic is the one who is like Sardaukar first, member of House Carino second, kind of. Yeah. And I think that the fact that her right-hand man is skeptical of her and cautious, thinking to himself, man, I better not let her try to seduce me. This woman's fucking crazy. Yeah. That adds such a depth to her character that is then just missing in this, which is really frustrating. And finally, Stilgar. Stilgar is awful. <laughs> just awful yeah, yeah awful changes he is such a damn wonderful shame. character it's a damn shame javier bardem mm. period it's a damn shame <laughs> still <laughs> sometimes i just need to say his name to clear the palate of whatever the fuck this was because like i struggle I, as always <laughs> I struggle to isolate like writer, director versus like casting choices, right? And I complained a little bit like I would not cast this man as Stilgar because Stilgar yeah. should still be the most capable fighter in Siege yeah. Chamber because he's still a Fremen. He should be 65 with a fucking eight pack. Yeah. Yes. I should be afraid of this man. Yeah. Even if he's like a live desert survivor, like still I should look at him and be like, he could solo anyone in this room. Like he could yep. take on anybody in this room without doubt. And yeah. even him pushing papers was always the big intimidating guy or you know he can take anyone in the room, but he's wearing like fun clerk's glasses and he's going, <laughs> oh, yeah. I have this report for you. And it was always supposed to be kind of like weird. 
a weird mashup. Right. He was supposed to be out of place in the political yeah. arena. That's not what Stilgar does. Yes. He's a Fremen. He's a fighter. He's a man of the desert. Through and through. And in this episode in particular, it was so frustrating because like on the writing side, there are some lines that are just awful, are just yeah. cringy and yeah. weird. The choice of storming Arakeen, what the fuck is what that? What the fuck? What are you doing? What is your end goal? Stilgar, like, he's like, it worked for Paul. I'll do it again. And it's so dumb. It doesn't make sense. And then there's that line, the send men to summon worms. Oh, my God. I hated it. What the fuck was that? Yeah. And... Although the script had already basically failed the character at that point, like you can't write that scene and it makes sense through acting right. choices or through directing choices. You've already failed at that point from just conceiving of Stilgar doing that. But then the send men to find the worms delivery was so bracing and weird. And I'm like, either the director, Yatanes, was like, on some weird fucking trip that day and was not <laughs> in his right mind. Yeah. Or the actor made the choice, the very strong choice, and Yatanes was like, ah, okay, all right. <laughs> I mean, we don't have time for a reshoot, so let's yeah. move on to the next shot, I guess. <laughs> like, it's either the actor made a really awful choice and then, you know, just has to live with that forever, or it was Yatanes had a very strange vision and it did not land. It kind of yeah. reminds me of Eddie Redmayne talking about Jupiter Rising. Did you see that movie? No, I've heard many terrible things about that movie. <laughs> the whole movie, he's talking like this. And in, oh, no. in subsequent interviews, he's like, that was such a bad choice. And everyone just let me do it for the whole, the whole movie. <laughs> it's like so much regret because he, he had this idea. Oh, my vocal cords were torn by a wolf attack. So I'm like, the whole time. But then he, he did. He looks back. He's like, it was terrible. And everyone's <laughs> like, this is terrible. And he's like, yeah, no one told me. Yeah. <laughs> so I feel yeah, like yeah. that maybe that's still guard in this moment. He made the choice from like an actor's perspective. Wrong choice. Wrong, Wrong choice, choice, buddy. We all make mistakes. Anyway, Javier Bardem. Javier Bardem. Mm. Javier mm. Bardem. Mm. Okay. Mm. Anyway. Let me just chew on that for a little bit. Let me just chew on Javier Bardem. <laughs> mm. <laughs> well okay so that was my second pick thing i didn't love and again now that the series is over i can say with authority bad choices bad choices were made on those yeah. specific things but as always we've fucking tanked the mood god this piece of shit series yeah. worst thing i've ever seen in my life in my Shyamalan couldn't do worse than this oh, fucking oh, well, trash well <laughs> <laughs> that would be the biggest twist of all <laughs> yeah. that it is somehow worse let's salvage the mood in the room yeah. favorite scene what is your favorite scene from this episode and why so this was easy for me i didn't have to think twice about it i've hinted at it all conversation yeah faradin's very public dunk on his mother hell yes yep on the day of his wedding incredible flex Galaxy brain, genius move on <laughs> yeah. his part. Yep. And what I liked most about it is that it made the wedding a more important moment in the story. Yeah. Because frankly, yeah. I think in the book, the wedding is just like a thing that's going to happen. Yeah. And it's not a thing that does happen. In the right. show, it is a thing that does happen. And the characters use the wedding as a moment for leverage or whatever to roar. <laughs> and yeah. Faradin using the wedding 
using this betrayal of his mother to get in Ganima's good graces, as we discussed earlier, is just a stroke of genius Brilliant. and instantly makes the character likable. Yeah. On so many levels. <laughs> it's so good. On so many levels. Yeah. And, you know, I said it earlier, feels like a cut chapter from the book because it's written so well and written so much in the characters' voices. Mm -hmm. Frankly, I'm like, add this chapter to the book, bro. Like, yeah, this is good. For sure. Add it in. And in addition to just an incredible moment and Faradin rising up those charts very, very quickly. <laughs> yeah. There's just some beautiful and wonderful writing here, too. Just some S-tier dialogue in this scene. And I want to call out two <laughs> quotes specifically. Yeah. The first is Faradin's amazing clapback when Wincisia calls him an insolent bastard. He responds, quote, <laughs> let's not discuss your weaknesses now, mother. And he emphasizes quote, you're so heavy. He goes, let's not discuss <laughs> your weaknesses now. And it's, I guffawed. I laughed aloud so heartily. I paused the video. I paused it and I was like, oh my God. And I just laughed and relished the joy yeah. that that line gave me. Yeah. So good. Incredible. When a parent calls a child a bastard and the clap back is, let's not discuss your weaknesses. <laughs> Fucking Lord. Oh, so good. Such I'm, an amazing line of dialogue. Incredible. Yeah. And then just a few seconds after that, once the betrayal is complete and the guards are taking Wincisio away, she stops in front of Jessica and makes this scathing remark. Yeah. Quote, Don't you find it interesting, Jessica, how the sins of the mother bloom in the children they bear? End quote. Oh, Holy shit. Yeah. Obviously, on one level, that's a reference to what just happened. Right. A betrayal, a scheme, yeah. a plan within a plan by the son of the mother who's been scheming and planning this whole series. Right, right. But on another level, if you know about the books and Jessica's guilt about Alia, some of which comes through in the miniseries, but again, something else I think is underutilized, that guilt that she feels about Alia that she could have been there for her daughter, that there was a way to fight abomination because Ganima yeah, and yeah. Leto are able to fight it. The sins of the mother blooming in the child, the sins of the Bene Gesserit blooming in Alia, right. of abomination about not fighting it, about fearing it, about succumbing to it. Right. Such a good line. Another line that sort of rings to me as John Harrison flexing his knowledge of how much he understands these characters and the relationships between them. I also I loved it. I spiraled from that line because I, again, I paused and I was like, that was beautiful. And then I was thinking about it. I was like, what is that? The sins of the mother bloom in the children they bear. Jessica, a sin of Jessica's could also be her betrayal of the Bene Gesserit order to give Ooh. birth to Paul as like a sin, you know, whatever. And what does that mean for Paul? as a breaker of rules and an upset of the status quo for the entire yeah. universe. Yeah. But also Chani being this sinless, blameless, beautiful person, having Leto and Ganima, these like comically perfect characters who have no yeah. problems. <laughs> They're just like, 
the only thing that goes wrong for them is that Ganema's cloak gets caught on a rock. Like that's the only right. mistake they make. So the idea of this sinless or blameless person who was more a victim than anyone giving birth to these kids who then don't have that same baggage. But also it's just such a good line. So good. That really started me thinking down a few roots, which was which was fun. Yeah. Just one sentence with layers upon layers of meaning right beautiful stuff so that was my favorite scene what about you basically the same scene <laughs> dunking on his mom Farad and dunking yeah. on his mom was like peak entertainment i was like this is yeah. spectacular 12 out of 10 love it this whole series masterpiece but rather than kind of talking through all the things you've basically already said i did want to celebrate leto to confronting alia at the end because while i think you're right that it is a deeply flawed scene that really goes back on a lot of like what is important in Dune. There were moments that I really loved. Like there are some goofy choices. The worm roar, fully unnecessary. <laughs> yep. Exactly bad. Exactly precisely bad. And really shocking that everyone involved was like, he comes into the room and he what's? He roars. Like a worm? Why? Right to prevent fight no he fights them after worm roaring what does the roar do what it, and john was like all right bet there's another one adding another roar <laughs> there are some goofy choices and maybe it was just because i was like well this is not the book anymore i'm just gonna watch this and as like a viewer it was a lot of fun the sequence of events <laughs> basically following the roar <laughs> was like a lot of fun yeah like there are some real moments of heart, right? Aaron Harkonnen's voice coming out of the like writhing exorcist body of Alia mm. was properly yes. spooky. The growing skin that initially bothered me was in this scene in particular, I was just noticing how much of his shoulders it had taken over. So like that was really effective. Just watching him beat the snot out of those guards, just like whipping around. Yeah. I was like, this is anime. This is fun stuff. And in the book, he just chucks a door. We see the remnants of him taking out a bunch of guards, but the guards in the room are like, we're going to stop. And then he throws like a 12 ton door and it doesn't hit anybody, but it's just such a show of force that no one fucks with him. That's fine as a book. Sure. Great. But in a visual right. medium, I do want to see him whipping around the room, beating the shit out of people. Hell yeah. <laughs> like, like, Hell yeah. That's such a better choice. And I think that the throwing herself from her keep where she spent all of those times just looking down on the city and that's like where her schemings happen the literal fall yeah there are so many reasons why it's better than the knife but the knife made it so much more personal and so much more visceral and the fact that leto was vulnerable to potentially being stabbed in the heart and dying was in addition yeah. to the dynamics of that little scene that i really appreciated Jessica doesn't exist as a character in this, so her being there didn't really mean anything. Right. And also, I really hated that her please help me sounded just like her. In the book, it's horrifying. Like, legitimately made it hard to go to sleep that night because the idea of someone twisting into her little, like, oh, mother, please, I'm just a little girl. Help. It's like, yeah. oh, God, oh, that's God. fucking Baron Harkonnen in her daughter's skin being like, oh, help me mother yeah. is so fucking scary. In this, it just was like, oh, she's asking for help. 
because she's <laughs> exorcist <laughs> dancing. She's like having a little moment. That didn't really work for me, but there were enough moments in that final scene that I was like, oh, this is actually really, I like this little choice or like this little thing here, that little thing there. Yeah, James McAvoy clearly demonstrates his super strength because he's carrying these scenes. <laughs> he's single-handedly he carrying this franchise. So anyway, that was my pick. Just wanted to shout yeah. out some of those final little moments. For sure. And yeah, golly, that's basically it. That's the episode. I think in summary, to kind of put a bow on everything, what are your thoughts about the whole miniseries, the whole work of art, now that we've consumed it first minute to last? It's tough for me. We've now spent many hours consuming and scripting and breaking down and analyzing and discussing this series. And unfortunately, I'm walking away with a bad taste in my mouth, Sure, which is sad because I don't want that to be the case. I just think the show here in this third episode completely fumbled the ball mm -hmm. at the one yard line. Like it was so close, so close to that touchdown and it just didn't score. And this last episode was just so egregious in so many ways that I ultimately am walking away dissatisfied. Sure. And that's sad because uh, I liked so much of episode two and right. I'm a sucker for Messiah, you know? Yeah. Episode one was good in so many ways. And those things still hold true. And those opinions still hold true for me as well. But looking at it as a whole package now, I can't help but be tainted by this third episode. And I equate it to something like Dexter or Lost, sure. TV shows that Game I... Game of Thrones. <laughs> Game of Thrones season eight, right? Like Star Wars movies. Star Wars movies, <laughs> episode nine. Yeah. Like, you still love the thing, and you always will. Yeah. I yeah. loved so much of Dexter. I loved Lost was like transformative for me as a kid watching. Lost was fucking like, great. I, I, loved I Lost. honestly, this is maybe too hot of a take, but I still think Lost is maybe one of the best, not one of like the best thing made for TV. I don't know that I've topped it mm. until the end, you know, until the end of Dexter, the last season of Dexter, the last season of Lost the last season of Game of Thrones, fumbling the ball so dramatically that it taints the rest of your show is honestly yeah. a bit of an achievement. <laughs> and it makes me sad because it's a shame, but I'm walking away having enjoyed my time with the series, but knowing that I will never revisit it mm -hmm. because I know how it ends. Right. And it's the same with Dexter. It's the same with Lost. It's the same with Game of Thrones. It's hard because I want to be able to recommend this to someone you know, someone who's like, oh, I just finished reading Children of Dune. I want to be like, oh, my God, check out the miniseries. Yeah. And I feel like now I'd have to say, check out the miniseries. There's a lot of good, but the last part's a little weak. Yeah, there's like a big caveat you have to include now. And it just sucks to have a caveat, a footnote, as you said, right at the end yeah. there. Yeah, which like you don't have with something like Villeneuve's movie. Right. You can be like, oh, you're a Dune fan? You have to watch right. this. Right. And I think if you're a Children of Dune fan... You don't necessarily have to watch it, depending on how much of a fan you yeah. are. I'd say you should watch yeah. it and enjoy the parts of it that are good. But what about you? What's your zoomed out overall feelings about the series? I mean, same thing. I give it four out of five worm roars. <laughs> overall, I love this miniseries. And I think that if someone read Children of Dune and said, should I watch this miniseries? I'd be like, yes. 
partially because James McAvoy is Leto too. And that's fucking crazy. <laughs> like, that's just yeah. a wild thing. When my girlfriend found out that there was a miniseries, she was like, and James McAvoy? And I was like, yeah, <laughs> yep. He's a big selling point. He's excellent in this. He's spectacular in it. And there are so many good things in the first two episodes. And I also really wonder if we're ever going to get a proper adaptation of Children of Dune. So it's like, if someone was like, should I watch the sci-fi miniseries adaptation of Dune? I'd be like, wait till you've seen Villeneuve's part two, because we are on the cusp of having a better, I think, overall representation mm, of what the book yeah, is. So true. Compared to that, do I think that in the next even five years, we'll be any closer to having a great representation on screen of Children of Dune? the book that is already a very hard book to adapt that yeah. worm skin is a whole thing you gotta do it's a whole and thing. there's literal incest plot lines that while not on screen <laughs> kissing uh is part of the many conversations and and in the book they're nine so it's like oh these nine-year-olds let's make them fuck each other and then this nine-year-old girl says to that adult we're going to have kids together, you and I. And he's like, uh. Right, right. So, like, those are things that you have to reconcile. I don't know. I broadly, I really loved the miniseries. The third act sucked. There are definitely parts of the third act that I wish were better. Yeah. But, like, John Harrison just demonstrated he understands the characters and the important narrative lines really incredibly. Like, the last episode, right? The fact that he summarized all of Messiah's complicated plots within plots down to, like, this is what is happening right spectacular Amazing like job. oh my god that's incredible but dumbing these things down or simplifying important conversations and bringing really important magnificent characters down to just like almost caricatures which dune is i think very good at dodging on the page yeah it's tough is tough and now i think for myself as well although i still very much enjoyed the overall thing and i think i still would very much recommend this to pretty much anybody who's read children of dune I now officially have a caveat yep. <laughs> and I now officially have a footnote to my recommendation. A, oh, P.S. I apologize in advance for the way that the third episode right, ends. Up. Have a third glass of wine, eat a gummy, <laughs> microdose, whatever it takes. That third <laughs> that third act is, that's going to yeah. take something. You need to be high on spice to really, to you really do. see what's you happening. <laughs> I think the only thing we can say at the end of all of this, at the end of this journey, yeah. is Jacarudu! Jacarudu! <laughs> we put our hands together. We, fi we fist bump in on the table. Jacarudu! Well, friends, there is no real ending. It's just the place where you stop the recording. But this podcast is always one step beyond logic. So help spread the word of Muadib and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And be sure to check out the other shows on the Lore Party Podcast Network on loreparty.com. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at lore underscore party. Thank you so much for listening. And remember, whoever controls the podcast controls the universe. We'll see you in the golden path.